Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. Today, we have a very special episode about Christopher Lash, and we have two guests, the co-hosts of the very good podcast, Exhaust. Uh, previous You Can't Win guest, John, is back, as well as his co-host, Emmett. They're here today. They recently did a three-part or four-part series on Christopher Lash, and I found it really interesting. They had some really good discussion of his work and kind of the uh, the relevance of his work today. Lash is not someone who I've read, but I've heard the name. You know, you kind of hear hear this kind of batted around in various circles. And uh, always seemed like an interesting thinker. And these guys really seem to know their stuff and had interesting things to say about him. So I uh, thought we would have them on and, and have a little conversation about it. So I think to kick things off, maybe you guys can tell us why you decided to do a series on Lash, what you found interesting about him, and um, maybe just summarize the ideas and the the, kind of what he's about a little bit. Yeah, totally. Um, So I first got introduced to Lash, uh, like many things that have come into my life that have changed it, through John. I think I was grumbling to him one day about, uh, I don't know, decadence or something like that, most likely. And uh, he quoted at length from Lash, and I was like, whoa, who's that? And he was like, oh, man, you got to check this out. So I went and read his book, The Culture of Narcissism, and was very taken with it. Um, Thought that even though it was written towards the end of the 70s, it had a lot to tell me about the life I was living at the time. Um, especially because I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where a lot of like retired new left people live. Uh, and he talks about them in, in his book. And so I thought it very like prescient in that way. And when it came time to do the podcast, John and I were sort of had a few conversations at the very beginning before we really started recording about what types of things we wanted to cover and what we even wanted the podcast to be about and what we wish uh, other people would do. Uh, and then we realized that we would have to go do them. And a series on Lash was one of those things. So we decided to take his book, his second to last book, uh, the last book that was published while he was still alive, uh, The Revolt of the Elites and The Betrayal of Democracy, which came out in like 94. We decided to do a series on that because coronavirus had given us ample opportunity to witness and reflect upon the inability of any elite sector charged with running the United States' ability to govern it whatsoever. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, I, I, the things you were saying there about your motivation to start a podcast and feeling like, oh, I wish someone had done this. It, it, you know, well, I, I guess we're gonna have to do it. I can kind of relate to that. I feel like that's we got something similar going on here, where it's sort of like, I don't know. I, I mean, we borrow a lot from uh, other podcasts that we like. I think, but we kind of put it together in our own thing, and then it's you know we. People doing different things about like Epstein or MK Ultra or all these kind of funny things <laughs> or whatever. Uh, you know, they all have their own takes and it's like, well, no one's approaching it from this particular angle. And uh, then it's you know, kind of up to you. Like, yeah, that's your angle, right? That's that's your opening. Yeah, totally. I think for us, we probably had you guys in mind and Alpha Bunga Bunga as sort of for two. Oh, sure. Uh, guiding stars for like what the general structure and vibe we were hoping to capture. Cool. That's, that's cool to hear. Uh, so what, what, what is uh, Lash's deal? What is he saying in those books? Well, if it's <clears> easy <throat> to summarize like that, I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. It, it's a long summary, but I'd like to give a shout out to uh you can't win guess Mike for putting me on Christopher Lash probably like eight years ago. So that I can claim the like pre-lash hype authenticity um, via the Isnad <laughs> that that provides me. I don't even think he maybe he had like skimmed one of the books, and we were chatting about like peak oil and like why everything was collapsing into the eschaton. And he was like, "Yeah, dude, have you ever read Christopher Lash? Like, he really knew what was going on." And uh, that's kind of how I got into the whole thing. 
Yeah, I feel like he, I can only speak to what I've read, which I think is exactly the same stuff as what Emmett's read, which is uh, I started with the culture of narcissism, uh, immediately moved on to the minimal self, and then I read a little bit of The True and Only Heaven, um, which is a book about the idea of progress, sort of like a historical um, archaeology of the idea of progress in the American tradition, and then me and Emmett both read together uh, The Revolt of the Elites. And so Culture of Narcissism kind of inaugurates some of his concerns with a left that he was sort of, I don't know how you would put it, I don't know that much about his biography, but I get the sense that he was growing more and more distant from his associations with the left like over the course of the 70s and the 80s, in large part because... He had a lot of criticism of, what would you say? Things like, I guess, feminism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he was skeptical of some of the stuff the new left was bandying about. I, like anti-family rhetoric. Right. I would describe it as uh, a double break, as far as I understand it. I believe that he was a student of the historian Douglas Hofstetter, who wrote you know, who's been very much resurrected in the Trump era because of the book, uh, the, the paranoid style in American politics, which was his, you know, uh, pearl clutching about Barry Goldwater, essentially. <laughs> and then he had another book, which is also, um, quite famous, which is anti-intellectualism in American history or something like that. And eventually Lash breaks from Hofstetter, I think because he just he can't totally stomach Hofstetter's contempt of everyday people. He's just too radically democratic for that. And I think he's skeptical of some of Hofstetter's uh, methods. On the other end, he breaks from whatever his affiliation was with anybody who was involved in like left politics in the 70s because of some of the things that John elucidates there. And so that puts him in a unique position because he has both ejected himself from a kind of the conventional wisdom of the immediate post-war liberal intelligentsia, uh, you know, an avatar of which would be Hofstetter. And he has also cut himself off from the Bernadine Doors, Dorn and Bill Ayers of the world. But he's not necessarily a right winger. That I can recognize in his Although work. people will point out that his concerns align sort of eerily with a lot of neocon writing of the time. Mm -hmm. I think probably Emmett and I would argue that that is true only to a point. Is that correct? Yeah. I would say that like, uh, you know, broken clocks are right twice a day. And some of those neocon guys uh, at the time, I think had some like legit concerns about what they were seeing come out of like the new left or whatever and uh lash had overlapping concerns there but it's also clear that he was deeply suspicious of them as well and thought that they were you know as they were uh pretty much intellectually irresponsible mm -hmm. yeah it's always i don't know people kind of end up doing this like blue team red team kind of thing with theory and and ideas and stuff and it doesn't really need to work that way you can kind of just read what someone has to say and if you agree with some of those things then you agree with some of those things if you disagree then you just like it doesn't have to sure. be like yeah. disavowal based yeah. on like you know what i mean yeah, like yeah, yeah. well it's almost like, like it's, you should be judging something on its own merits based on a set of principles external to their personality <laughs> wild yeah it's a crazy <laughs> idea yeah, I think that's that's a uh, it's that's the basic way that I try to look at any of this kind of stuff. Like a lot of the um, post-war American intellectuals sort of blur together for me because I don't really I don't have like a background in a lot of this stuff, um, and uh, I do think that there is this, like a tendency sometimes to lean on to a master theorist or something and then mm -hmm. try to defend everything, and that doesn't end up working, but. Uh, it's true that you can just kind of look at what they say on any given particular point, and then you can even use that as a springboard for other stuff to to you know keep keep moving in that direction without necessarily uh, you know 
swallowing all of it. I don't know. It, it is strange how people kind of like, I'm sure there's, I've, I've read some of the different quotes from Lash that, uh, you know, they, they don't, they seem to, at least in those quotes, not have aged as well, but it's like, uh, I don't know. It's like, is the question, do I have a positive attitude towards a particular person who wrote something or is it, you know, should we hash through the position of these different social groups and how they uh, see themselves and stuff. I think that's why it's useful to look into any given sort of post-war thinker in these ways, because, uh, you know, it, it at very least starts to paint in the picture in ways that, uh, um, you know, you, you, you don't, you don't get from just, just reading people that fit the contemporary fads or something. So, yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, when we did that episode on Albert Murray, you know, mm -hmm. these kind of like yeah. people that are sort of weird and alienate all the little camps around them, you know, Albert kind of, Murray is extremely based. <laughs> I, he's very interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I liked, I, I read, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Omni Americans. And I found yeah. it kind of, it, it was a little bit difficult because it seemed very much like, a, a product of its time and referenced a lot of the things that were going on. And I wasn't super familiar with all of the names and all the implications and all that of what he was saying, but it was definitely just interesting to read something like that where, um, you, you know, was just kind of calling things as he saw them and was not sort of playing like the, you know, like the team game sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I feel like Lash seems to be one of the, those kind of people as well. Like, kind of has these ideas like you, you've described him as a like a an egalitarian you know so kind of on the left in in those terms but then having these other critiques that where it's like they, he doesn't just necessarily line up with your standard sort of like leftist package of ideas so um you know you kind of see that a little bit more today too like i guess it, nowadays it's it you know you're you someone says they're leftist you kind of assume they have certain ideas about like what culture should look like and how things should operate and stuff. But there are, I guess, some people that sort of break away from that in a kind of Lashian way. And, uh, I, I don't necessarily see that as a very productive field right now. I just don't see like people that are, who have those opinions that are coming out with anything, especially insightful, but maybe Lash is a little bit different. He seems like a fairly intelligent, incisive kind of a person from, what I get from your podcast, especially. So, um, what do you think some of his, uh, most interesting or incisive critiques are like, what's the, what should we really be taking away from someone like him? I could probably, I'll say that I can probably best like extemporaneously pontificate about him by doing it sort of autobiographically. Um, I think I encountered him in maybe a similar position to how some people find themselves who end up in the categories that you're talking about, Tom, where it was sort of like, yeah, I used to be an internet communist back in the day, but, uh, you know, I kind of realized that something about it was really, at least for my like own life, kind of infantile and silly. So I sort of had those kind of commitments, but I was also becoming newly religious um, which I think maybe a lot of people also experience these days in the Twitterverse. So I was kind of like starting to attempt to gel these two sides of like who I had tried to be in my life together into something that kind of made sense. But I would often encounter this weird stuff where it would be like, yeah, I, you know, I can't really get with like these particular Stalinist programs or something anymore now that I like believe in God. So how do I work this out into something where I have some, you know, I'm just a person who's used to having like a vision of the future or like a set of critical ideas about society. So how do I reformulate that for myself in this kind of new, um, you know, this new part of my life when I don't know, I was in my early 20s or something. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I think that in finding Lash, I was able to find something that spoke to maybe a really basic discomfort with, you could say, like a contemporary capitalist society, but also the exact sort of same deep discomfort I had with a lot of facets of the left that I saw around me 
I honestly think one of the, like, I had a lot of leftist friends in real life and anarchists and stuff like that back in the day. And I would always show up to their hangouts or, like, go to the rallies and stuff. And I think one thing that kept kind of occurring to me over and over again was that actual working class people like my parents and everyone that, you know, they knew would never feel comfortable heading to, like, a local leftist meetup. You know what I mean? Like, culturally, something was just, like, not there. They would immediately feel pretty alienated and, like, not stay if they ever, for any reason, showed up to one of those places. And I think kind of the basic question of, like, why is that started to occur to me around the same time. And I think that one of the invaluable things I started to find in Lash was that... I guess the basic assumption that the left is made up of working people in America is just not true and maybe hasn't been in a long time. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, that point really resonated for me with him. It was, you know, I grew up around people from the new left. You know, we were somehow uh, family friends with like the heirs and Dorn family, you know, uh, which is interesting because we didn't share their tax bracket. That's for sure. And mm-hmm. there was always, you know, sort of an interesting tension between like someone like my mother who grew up working class in Michigan and them because they were essentially like the scions of major CEOs who were f- frankly fucking spoiled brats who got people killed and were totally sociopathically irresponsible. And so when I read Lash, I was just like, oh, this kind of explains this milieu. And it sort of explains like every retiree in Santa Fe who likes to reminisce about the glory days of like whatever happened in the 60s that they were barely a part of, you know. And then, um, you know, I was like pretty involved in DSA and stuff like that, Uh, you know, when I got radicalized or whatever. And, you know, I was a delegate at the convention and stuff like that. And something seemed uh, off. Like, it seemed like, you know, the national convention was really more of like another renegotiation of the Port Huron statement from the 60s. And it didn't really seem to matter that much. I really wanted to know how to form a union and to make more money. You know, I was working the cash register at a bookstore and it sucked. And I thought that the way that my wages worked and the way that, um, you know, me and so my coworkers treated like sucked. My concerns were pretty like immediate and had to do with reproducing my everyday life. And I had considered myself a leftist. I had, you know, read Marx. I had spent a lot of time on that. Um, I had, you know, uh, I had pretty like sincere commitments. And then as I started to, become soured by my experience there, not with any individuals uh, who were usually like pretty good, well-meaning people, you know, but with what was at hand in terms of tasks and intent and capability and strategy, I was looking for other explanations. And I was also like not convinced that, um, you know, it was politically salient to ask to run things that you also profess to hate and wish to destroy. Like that didn't seem like a very good sell to me to the American people. And it also seemed to me like, you know, a lot of what I was dealing with, you know, when I was like freelancing and and things like that is I realized that I was participating in my own kind of like group think with everybody else and like the leftosphere or whatever. And the more I published, the more uncomfortable I got. And I was just like, God, I am really not thinking for myself. I can tell that I am generating the type of takes that I think will get me to fit into whatever this is. And whatever this is doesn't seem to have anything to do with my everyday working life. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels that way. So as I continued to read Lash, it gave me more and more provocative questions uh, to ask myself, which is really what I think the merit of a thinker is even if their answers might not be, you know, up to snuff sometimes, you know, that might the, even be better. Cause it's yeah, like, it no, that's not quite right. Yeah. The right. questions he brought about like, what do we mean by democracy? Who are the people really? What's actually happening on the left? What do they say about themselves? You know, how does that work? Uh, why does it seem like society has been reduced to bare life and survivalism? 
You know, in other words, what is the function of the university system in our society? <laughs> yeah, that's another great question. <laughs> you know, uh, does the press is it actually interested in being this like, you know, venue for sincere democratic discourse? You know, uh, these were all questions that started as I started to mature, started to become more pressing, and to me, Lash provided an adequate vantage from which to start considering those things. Yeah, that's that's cool. I I can relate very much to both your guys' stories. I mean, John, you basically sound like you were describing my <laughs> trajectory there to a T. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think what's interesting to note is that both of you guys at various points could have easily taken very easy answers and kind of just been like, Oh well why is why do these not match up? Oh, it's because those people are stupid or those people are evil or something like that. But I think uh, if you don't allow yourself to do that and you try to find more honest answers, more interesting answers that uh, if, if you just ascribe these kind of moral flaws to people that you have no reason to do that, except that it gives you like a neat, tidy little way of explaining things, you're not getting anywhere that you're, you're providing yourself a way of, of staying put exactly where you are in terms of your understanding of the world. But what, what that, those things are, they're really opportunities to go and kind of explore things, right? Like if you don't understand something, that's where you need to be moving. And, um, when things aren't lining up, when your worldview is kind of, you're finding some contradictions or something, you always want to assume the best of all these different groups of people that you're trying to figure out, you know, because, uh, I don't know. I think, I think everyone is trying, like by and large, like as far as the way that they move and stuff, they're, they're kind of operating on their, what they think is like the right thing to do. Even people like the neocons or whatever. Like I was thinking about, um, how it seems like Lash's, you know, part of Lash's thing is that the left isn't really, when you think of the left, you think of like working class movements and stuff that maybe that's not exactly what it is in the United States. And, um, you know, people talk about like neocons having this like Trotskyist history and this, you know, origin story of being like Trotskyites and stuff. And uh, maybe it's something similar to that, you know, like maybe in the same way that neocons used to be Trotskyists had this idea of like socialism and then went on to become, you know, ghouls, um, maybe you know, the, the quote unquote, the left in the, in the U S is sort of like a same sort of a thing, except that, you know, not as ghoulish, obviously, like they haven't started any Iraq war kind of situation or whatever, but maybe misguided in a similar way where they kind of view themselves as leading the charge on some kind of, you know, principle that they took from their cultural heritage of the enlightenment and all that kind of stuff and are going forth with that. And, you know, they, they see themselves in one way, but that's not really the case. And whether that's true or not, my, my point is just that like, that's a, a much more interesting, productive narrative, I think, as an example to follow than something like, oh, well, these people are just evil grifters or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. I definitely think that like, I've had enough conversations with people who maybe fit into the other camp where I like, I'm never able to get them to really see it my way. But I also can understand that, like, from their point of view, they feel like, oh, like, you know, I'm looking towards a better world in the things that I think. And even though I might think that that's a result of being, like, sort of utterly myopic, I also understand that it's something they can't get out of right now and that I'm probably also, like, subject to many things. Like, I have a, a long catalog of, like, utterly stupid shit that I've believed in, so... You know, I think that's just kind of the way that it is. What but it, you, sorry, what do you mean by people in the other camp exactly? You mean like uh, kind of like true well, believers? I think one of the things, um, like, because I grew up with, you know, my dad worked in construction and plumbing and stuff, and I just failed out of high school eventually, and I hung out with people who never went to college. Like, most of my friends never went to college. So I feel like I had a pretty good, like, experience of the non we'll say like PMC milieu, um, even though I'm now like day class A and a class trader and I'm going to college, like back then I sort of saw like 
what your future held if you were in that group of people. Like, you know, you can know enough smart people who are like working the night shift at the Circle K and like their future is the day shift at Circle K. And it's just kind of like <laughs> yes. fucking depressing. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally. You're like, that guy is an amazing guy. And like, it's really sad that society is going to make absolutely no use of him. And you, you maybe you know a lot of friends like that. And, you know, half of them are into drugs and like working in kitchens and stuff and their lives just go downhill. Um, so I, I have that life experience. But then, you know, I'm entering kind of a more like professional sort of area in life. And now I'm going to a school where I'm with like all the kids who made A's and took every AP test and exam and, you know, got like good SAT scores, et cetera, to like go to this college. And I just sort of happened to like be able to bumble in and Mm -hmm. you talk to people and they just have such a different view of the world. Like they, I think they really just do think that like the people, like all of my friends are just like stupid and kind of deserve to be where they are, but that like in a better world, they would have better social services or something, but they're also not going to be that concerned about like personally trying to get those provided for them. Like it's sort of a like, yes, I'm a human being. So I agree that human beings should be treated well, but I also like don't really know anything about a lot of the people who live in this country and I don't really care to. And I'm also just kind of mainly interested in what I'm up to and like my own personal advancement. And like, that's me giving a bad characterization of them. Um, like uh, maybe a not completely fair one, but like, I, so that's the other side. So I talk to those people and I'm like, Hey, look, like what you think it may seem normal to you, but like, to me, it's pretty psychotic and like inhuman in a lot of ways. But I, I don't know, you know, like without their life experience almost makes it seemingly impossible for them to understand what I'm trying to say to them. But I felt like when reading, especially this last book, Revolt of the Elites, uh, I guess it felt like Lash was in some way articulating in a more broad theoretical way the kind of personal experience that I'm like talking about having in some ways. Like there is this group of people that don't really have any local ties that kind of drift from city to city, uh, working in professional jobs that usually deal with some kind of, what do they call it? Uh, symbolic analysts, like they're computer programmers or university professors or like administrators or something. And like their fate just doesn't have much material crossover with like the fate of some random guy from Florida, you know, who just like works a random job. And I think he did a good job of articulating just how that came to be, how that wasn't always the case, and like why that was troubling in general for the sort of outlook of the future of the country. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, I've had sort of similar thoughts a lot of the time when I look at who gets elected by left-wing parties in different places. And so in Quebec, they have a party called Quebec Solidaire, which uh, is, um, it's a pretty far left, like it's, it's, it's in terms of like elected left in North America, it's one of the further left kind of formations. It's like, you know, they got a few people, maybe like 10 or 11 Quebec legislators that, you know, support socialism pretty openly and, you know, are left wing. And they sort of went through the candidate list of them and went by what kind of jobs they had. And, um, uh, a lot of them are social worker or, you know, like lawyer or union official or something like that kind of thing. And that's still one of the best formations, I think on the left that's out there, but, uh, it's, it's interesting that it's, it's still, it's still on behalf of someone else, right? Like it's still, it's like this idea that you've got this party out there that, a lot of, you know, a lot of poor people do vote for and stuff, but it's got that sort of sense that, okay, we will represent you. We will be your voice. Um, but it's not really that you're, you're their voice, right? Like it's like that degree of removal that concerns me a lot because I mean, the obvious thing is that you can be betrayed very quickly with that because, uh, the integration of into that system becomes its own thing. But it's also just something like, uh, it's, it's just interesting how that discourse ends up happening where it's like, 
it has some sort of autonomy from it, from the people. And I guess that's just natural in any sort of representative system. But it is one of those things where the left has had a hard time. Uh, it's had a hard time negotiating with that without becoming, you know, like epic media creation kind of things or something, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking, Don, I couldn't help but remember do you guys remember the Chaz or the the Chop, whatever it was called in Seattle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think they ended up saying a lot more about American society than they meant to because they couldn't get their garden built correctly, and um, <laughs> basically culminated in murdering two teenagers of color before asking everyone to vote for Biden when they broke up. And I think like that's exactly the disconnect. You know, it's this sort of like we're the good chosen ones of this class and we'll represent you in this like public way and do all this spectacular symbolic stuff that basically ends up reproducing everything as it already exists. Yeah. I think it seems like what, what really is the, the big issue is like, because they have this class position above the people that they want to help that when the rubber hits the road, it's their way. It's not the working people's way. So like, you know, John, you were talking about how when you talk to these people, they kind of just don't, it's hard to communicate to them. Like what, what's so bizarre about the way they, they view things or like maybe what's why there's a disconnect at all. Right. Like they, they just don't see it because from their perspective, there's a million different ways to just hand wave that away and just barge through with whatever they want. Right. And it's, it's not out of necessarily malice or any ill intent or anything like that. It's just that it's so, so easy to just push aside the people below them in the social Mm -hmm. hierarchy, you know, and so they can have the best intentions in the world, but any kind of frustration they're going to have with the people they want to represent are, it's going to be so, it's not, it doesn't even have to be that they are like, oh, well, I'd rather not deal with that everything's going to align to make it so that instead they kind of stick on their class kind of, you know, in their class position doing their thing, regardless of what working people are trying to tell them or what they want, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And I definitely think that they are actually largely conflating both interests. If that makes sense. Like I believe that most of them, when they're pushing a like pretty stereotypical agenda, to like expand bureaucracies, bring more money for like professional, you know, like they're advocating for their class position, which you could even like, to be fair, say that's not exactly the status quo. I think what they ultimately want is like better working conditions and more money and more jobs for people who have college degrees. And I think that really aligns with them going like pretty straight ticket, like milk toast Democrat or whatever in most elections. But I think that somehow ideologically, they also fully believe that like that is the same exact thing as pursuing a better world for the working class, which yeah. they may also sort of believe that they're a part of somehow as well at the same time in a weird way. Like, you know what I mean? There's probably a lot of strange, like, ideological moves going on inside of that all. Mm-hmm. That would, You know, you could tease them out on an individual basis, but there's definitely like you know for the the side that's supposed to be about like a materialist class analysis there's a lot of weird like fuzzy conflation happening um usually yeah rather than like oh here's what we're actually doing and pursuing yeah there seems to be also just a misunderstanding of how politics works you know Um, i don't want to be like too mean here uh, but I think it should be clear that I'm also when I do this, I'm also doing like a level of self-criticism. I'm of this class. I have made these mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I just had the uh, you know experience of also like working the same dishwashing job as John and like living on the poverty line in North Florida, which really changed the way I looked at things. So I think that's part of why it was easy to dislodge, not easy, but possible for me to dislodge myself for some of this. But you know, I mean, it's sort of like, okay, let's take one idea, right? Let's take the idea of pushing Joe Biden left. 
I would defy anyone who thinks that's possible to explain to me the me- mechanism by which that happens. But well, that's, you see, and that's it, how it will get represented in some of these groups. You know, you give up all your leverage in an agreement that he'll later do something when you have no leverage. Yeah. And, and like, that's it. You know, I mean, I think that was the most telling part of the end of the Bernie campaign. You know, when Bernie closed up shop before the convention out of some sense of honor or whatever it was, which I think was deeply misguided, which meant that the convention wasn't split or whatever when they went into it, which means there was no reason for Biden or anybody to, you know, set up some sort of agreement with the people Bernie was trying to bring into the party. And yet it was still like, you got to get out the vote for him. And then we'll push him left once he's in office. So I think what I mean when I say that there's like not knowing how politics works, that's sort of like an obvious mistake. And it's interesting that it is so pervasive. But what I also think is happening is that there's this story that gets put over it. And this is something we were talking about with Jeff Schellenberger, where you go, okay, so I think probably in 1917 in October, there were riots. So I'm guessing that because we're rioting, we're like the vanguard, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it like sure. it works at that level. So there is this whole like aesthetic narrative of the self and you know the journey of self-discovery that gets played out within these conflations that perpetuate the idea that this is going to be a left interested in changing the world. And that's kind of a discussion Lash starts in Culture of Narcissism, but it gets taken up by people like uh, um, the last psychiatrist blog, which is defunct but still readable, where you have people trying to spin out a non-psychiatric, like psychiatrically approved definition of narcissism and talk about what this might mean on a cultural level, sort of like Lash is starting to talk about, and I think just like Emmett describes, you start to see like, oh, what is the reason that people have these really like ephemeral kind of chaotic and shifting affiliations to various ideas and groups um, that it definitely seems like a break. Like, you know, I don't think you would say that like Eugene Debs was sort of like one thing one day and another thing another day in the same way that we are today. And like what features of our psychology or, you know, like social setting or whatever are making that possible. And it is this kind of like, you know, you have a bunch of like subjects who have extremely weak senses of identity, which are constantly being reinforced by treating all these external things as if you can just bring them in and make them a part of yourself. And in that way, you end up having the like really strange example of like some guy who works in investment banking tossing a Molotov cocktail at the police in a BLM rally. And you're mm-hmm. like, well, like what sense does that make? And well, it makes all the sense if that guy's sense of self is like entirely predicated on the fact that he, you know, while at the office was envisioning himself all day holding the Molotov cocktail because that's who he really is, like who he is day to day. Like that's just something he does. But what he does is not who he is. And I think that this was like a conversation that Lash started, which for me isn't the entire explanation, nor like a perfect model, nor do I really feel like kind of socializing psychiatric explanations has, you know, like it's not something I tend to always want to do, but I found enough utility in in what Lash was talking about that I'm like willing to go with it, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So is there some way that you kind of have to take a step back after all of this and, you know, if you want anything done wrong, uh, right, do it yourself kind of thing? Like, is there some way to approach the left or some other new political formation or something? And like, it, are there lessons that can be drawn other than just negative ones? Like, is there, is there strategies that can be used to actually build political movements that, you know, deliver for people in their actual everyday lives in a positive way without taking on that sort of representation and frenetic identity strategy kind of thing. Yeah. I think I can only speak for myself and sort of what I'm up to, 
which has a lot to do with like the nuclear energy sector and like creating an international coalition of both advocates for nuclear energy and people who are in unions that work at the plant, you know, and helping put them together so they can all figure out how to defend their jobs before the plant closures kick in and things like that. And to me, I'm like, well, I don't really care what the left is doing. These are working people who are in organized labor, who are out there fighting for their communities and for, you know, uh, one of the cleanest forms of energy we have. That's like good enough for me. All the other stuff, I'm like, ah, you know, it's just background noise. It's just like some weird discursive game that a bunch of other people are playing. So, you know, that's the step back I took. And then I was like, okay, like, I understand this. The stakes are clear. You know, this has a real impact. I agree with this is where I'm going to be. Yeah, totally. And I think that probably part of why exhaust has some fun tension is because I am like a, a quietest Confucian Muslim. And so I provide the counterbalance to any of Emmett's sort of modern hopeful tendencies. But at the same time, <laughs> that's I, have fair, like yeah. this, I have a moral imperative to support anything that makes people's lives better. So we can actually unite on the on the goal somehow, which I think makes for like a nice little duo. But yeah, I would honestly say like one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, it's something that Mike brought up um, recently, which is like probably doing a sectoral analysis of American society. It would offer a lot of explanatory power, perhaps for a lot of recent political activity that maybe you don't get the complete picture of when you're thinking of it solely in terms of maybe like these kind of class arrangements, if that makes sense. Because it seems like, for instance, Donald Trump does really well with like real estate people and he's in the real estate business and like extrapolating out from that, like who are the people that the real estate business employs, you know, like whose livelihoods are tied directly to that industry um, and how that operates, where does the money come from? And maybe looking at things in that way, I think would probably give us some hope for like saying like, oh, what would like a new political configuration be? Like who would it bring together? Who would be able to share enough of the same interests that they would want to advocate for the same kinds of things? And so that's maybe something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I just want to build on that with, with one more thing. You know, to me, coronavirus was very clarifying in terms of the way in which American society melted down and what America could and couldn't do. There's this tendency to speak about the situation of working people, the working class or whatever, as if we're still in the middle of the New Deal 30s. And every major corporation in America is this vertically integrated thing that actually produces anything. And that's not how society is anymore. So what does that mean? And if we're going to talk about the importance of provocative questions, and that sometimes that can be the best thing an analysis leaves you with. I mean, that's sort of my provocative question is what does labor mean within a nation state when you have so globalized supply chains that it has fragilized the nation state and it has a priori weakened labor's power within it. It's a good question to ask. And I wish I saw more people asking it. Yeah. Um, there's a book that was written in the, I believe the sixties, maybe the early seventies. It was, it was written in, in the, the aftermath of the JFK assassination, I believe uh, by Carl, Carl Oglesby, I think, called The Cowboy and Yankee War. And uh, I haven't read it myself. It's kind of like old. So whenever I see it, it's like pretty expensive and I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. But uh, it seems interesting. Um, I've read the first couple of chapters that were available online. And it, essentially, it kind of like outlines a, like two factions of the political elites in the United States at that time um, as being the Yankees and the Cowboys. Uh, you can roughly ascribe Democrats to the Yankees and Republicans to the Cowboys, but it's not so neat as that, right? Like there's a lot of crossover and, and kind of overlap there. 
but the most important part is like the way that different parts of the economy line up with that. And along with that, like different sort of like foreign policy goals, different ideas about how to manage the national economy, uh, different like cultural leanings and why those are present in different political groupings and stuff like that. So um, something like that for 2020, I think would be an amazing thing. I think that would be a great read. Mm. I don't know who could do it, <laughs> but <laughs> someone someone should. Certainly sounds attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, may, maybe this leads us back to what we started talking about at the beginning of the episode about how you think of a good idea. Oh, someone should do that, and then you end up doing it. Well, maybe maybe it's up to the four of us. Maybe we ought to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe get into questions now. Do you think or? Yeah, I think so. It seems like sure. a, a good time to move on to questions here. Let's uh, okay. load that up. Okay, so let's get into the questions here. I think this first one is an excellent fit for the episode. It goes like this. Should the U.S. left shut up about trains? Plenty of extremely fascist nations like Germany, Japan, and China have extremely robust passenger rail infrastructure, and it's mostly used to facilitate people going en masse to the mall to file insurance forms and other dumb shit. Americans use cars for this purpose, but surely just reducing the necessity for regular long-distance transport is smarter. Most people don't really want to go anywhere anyway for the simple reason that if they did, they'd already be there. Hell yeah. This is an incredibly like misanthropic take in some ways. Um, <laughs> yep. Jesus. Uh, look, I... I don't know. I don't have a stance on like the train thing. I would like to quit hearing about fucking light rails because it's never going to happen. But, you know, I do think that I respect the idea of anyone trying to think in terms of civic goods that will endure for generations. And I think that yeah. any left project that doesn't, you know, A, have the concerns of the working class in a material way uh, front and center. Uh, and you know is responsive and perhaps led by those people uh, in the best case scenario uh, and doesn't consider things in terms of posterity is not going anywhere yeah, yeah. i definitely have to agree that i mean even taking it in a more ideal plane like just weighing a car against a train honestly like cars are more dangerous more like cars and roads is fucking horrible like what the car did to the road is just like one of the worst things in like urban history of humanity. Um, in my point of view, like the road used to be so good and it could be great again. You know, if only we could come together. Yeah. Mara, and, <laughs> yeah. Make, make roads great again. Yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, I don't know what like the political possibility of like whatever sort of high speed train project people might want would be. I would definitely use it. I use the slow train up and down the East Coast sometimes, and it mm -hmm. takes forever, and it isn't that great. And they're slowly, like Amtrak's new CEO as of maybe six months ago, a year ago, was like a former airline guy. So, of course, he's trying to make it just as shitty as they possibly can to like cut costs in any way they possibly can notwithstanding the fact that Amtrak like receives significant public money. Um, you know, so there's some idea that it has to be like equally accessible to the public in like kind of a general way, but I think they're trying to make some sort of weird pricing tiered system for it. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. Oh, man, how far we've fallen from the glory days of Hunter Biden being a part of Amtrak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like. I'm sure trains would be good. They seem like a good investment, but, you know, if it's possible. I'm not really like, uh, I guess when, you know, when people get into trains, it's it's uh, it's like something to do with the logistics and then something to do with like the, so like they, you know, people memorize all the schedules and all that kind of side of things. But then there's also like the actual physical like embodiment of the logistics like the actual train that people like i've seen a lot of people around here they come to train watch and like you know just the train spotters they 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 because there's like a there's certain places near me which are very good vantage points for taking photos and stuff um i used to take the train all the time though because uh 
it was one of the only options out here uh, to get into the city or to get like, you know, further away. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where, I don't know, you, you also don't want like some sort of nostalgia to drive the whole thing. You want like actual data and stuff that backs it up. But um, I always, I always find this kind of funny about like uh, the Soviet Union stuff because early on I was really found that fascinating, like all the massive train networks they had and stuff. And then I was reading more about like the economics of it in the seventies and eighties and that. And, uh, they, it was funny because, you know, in the eighties and seventies, the, the main complaints in the Soviet union weren't like, you know, they people nowadays, they always have like, Oh, they have this much miles of track and this much, these many trains, these many routes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and if you read about it, it was like the complaints were number one, you know, they couldn't get a car. They couldn't, uh, if they did get a car, it, it sucked. Um, and if, uh, you know, the trains, they overbuilt the trains, like there's too many tracks, like miles of track so that it was really hard to maintain. Mm. And, uh, that, you know, they constantly breaking down and stuff. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I thought that was funny because it's like, it really does show on paper like that whole, that overproduction kind of thing where it's like, you know, just maximizing track distance or like, you know, trying to build this thing doesn't necessarily mean it's a positive public good or something, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah. I think my number one complaint, if I was like a Soviet citizen about trains, it would be the brakes are so loud. Have you ever seen like a, a YouTube video or something? I don't know if anyone's no, no, no. been to Russia, but <laughs> no, they I haven't it. really spent a lot of time in the break sound section of YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> when they come to a stop, they're really screechy and loud, and yeah, that would be my number one complaint. Do, um, do you remember that from your when you were a kid, or no, no, just from okay, okay, because like they're actually really beautiful. The the stops, the actual like train station stops mm -hmm. themselves. They have like yeah, yeah, yeah. all they're this art gorgeous. and stuff. Oh yeah, my yeah. god. The yeah. civic dignity of those train stations is unparalleled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just but, the screeching. And then it's just like this extreme screeching that comes through. It's a really funny juxtaposition. Sure. But it's it's funny though, when when we look at those things like the luxury and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, when we when you take a cynical eye to a lot of that thing, like uh, it starts to go into like, oh, they overinvested in this or something, or they oh they they prioritize this instead of something else a lot of the time. You sure. Know? Or, or it's like, oh, the you read about it and it's like, oh, this this uh, local governor wanted something fancy to, you know, boost their ego or something. Basically, you know, they, there's always like cynical counter reasons for a lot of like uh, things. I think are I, I find that kind of thing fascinating. Like the whole at the end of the day, like a lot of these policy decisions, it, there's there's many other factors at play than just like you know the you know, like, I mean, that if, if things like get built like this in the United States, like big, massive, uh, fast trains, whatever networks, uh, rapid, uh, then it's going to be, uh, um, it's probably, I mean, just realistically, it's going to be some sort of grand project of like a president trying to impress people or something, you know, like it's not, it's not necessarily going to be because of, uh, good reasons. It might be something like, uh, Kamala Harris trying to, uh, dump a bunch of money into, you know, projects, whatever. I don't know. I, that's It's funny because that's how politics works, I guess, you know, like just weird. You just hope there's coincidence between the politics and the good and whatever. So, yeah. yeah, that's about the most you can hope for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it, if trains and whatnot are fascist, then let's just attract some fascist money and let's get some, yeah. you know, MBZ transcontinental lines going or, the Xi Jinping line or whatever, like let's just put <laughs> sure. their faces on trains and you know, whatever. I just imagine you putting it on the front of the train, like Thomas, the tank engine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Xi Jinping, like screeching Soviet train, ripping into a station. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Um, all right, here we go. This is a uh, not really a question, but it says Lyndon LaRouche's name is our pride, his vision is our way, and his legacy is our path. You guys got any LaRouche takes? I found, uh, I think, like Logo Daedalus posted some really like 
ancient 70s LaRoucheite newsletter or something. The E-I-R. E-I-R. Yeah, and there was this yeah. whole long um, thing about how William F. Buckley is essentially like a little cuck errand boy for like the Rothschilds or something. <laughs> nice. and, and they're like many centuries plot to enact like Fabianism across the world, which I, it was an enjoyable read. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's delicious. <laughs> yeah, LaRouche is fun. Um, that's like, you know, how like uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, you know, it's kind of like corny or whatever in like the Forgotten Realms. Like it's pretty corny and like silly, but there's a lot of fun to it. I feel like that's kind of LaRouche's niche in politics is like Forgotten Realms of like yeah. modern politics. All right. How about this one? Why do online Zoomers take themselves so seriously these days? Even their jokes are sincere efforts to make other people laugh, as opposed to a flaky break of references and ironies to tickle the in-crowd and epater les normies. Hmm. I don't know what half of those words are. Yeah, I don't know what half those words are either, but I also, you know, my experience of Gen Z, uh, you know, I was a tutor for a little bit, you know, uh, my wife does that. Uh, is that, yeah, some of them are incredibly like serious and, um, you know, maybe overly earnest, but generally they all radiate with a staggering degree of what they call chaos energy and do (laughs) not seem to give a fuck about what anyone else thinks. It's amazing. And I respect its power and I look forward to watching them dry and then snort my bone marrow after cutting it up with a credit card. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on a tiktok video yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i i think i agree um i don't i don't have the sense that they're take. i think millennials are the ones that are taking themselves yeah, seriously we, yeah, dude j- wretched like <laughs> you know not uh god man so self-serious it's such a such a cloying fragile smarmy sensibility and very like juvenile yeah like very juvenile kind of concerns like oh they said a bad word or they did a you know that kind of it's just like get over you like don't you have other things to worry about like you're all yeah you're so politically you know everyone's up some big political activist these days right everyone thinks they're like this they're the next lenin or whatever and that's what they're worried about like yeah i mean it, you know we live under a tyranny of theater kids what can you say <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, so we're we're in agreement. The Zoomers are the are based. Yeah, they're they're doing great. They're kids, you know. Just let them be kids. They'll figure sure. it out. You know, I, I don't really. I'm not concerned, uh, one way or the other. Yeah, I don't trust them personally. I just I don't know. I, they're up to something. That's you know. I don't know. There, there's something going on there. I don't know. <laughs> I. Uh, even the yeah, way you I, said that was like peak guy on his porch. I really respected yeah. that. Time. That was really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, uh, I don't know. They're, they're, they've got some sort of plan or something. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not involved in that. Um, there's some, there's some carryover from the LaRouche question to this one. <laughs> they factor in somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm waiting on the next newsletter. Yeah. <laughs> it would be amazing if there was some mass movement of like LaRoucheites from the from the Zoomers that just comes out of nowhere. Like he dies see, yeah. and then they become like, you know, he's like a he martyr. He did die. He died a couple years ago, right? Something like that? Yeah, a year ago or oh, something. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I didn't know that he physically could. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, he transcended, I think is what we say. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, rest in peace. He's up there with Bernie Sanders now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pull one out for a minute. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on here. Um, will Don have a column or podcast at the Harbinger Media Network? Not sure if that's a real media network. I haven't heard of it, but there is a user in our Discord by this name. Could be him. Yeah, I guess uh, it would depend on how much it pays and uh, which companies I have to defend, whatever. So, <laughs> okay, if it, so if in either some... case, <laughs> if yeah. the, if he pays, you're you're okay with it. 
Well, yeah. I mean, if it's like, you know, you have to, you get 10,000 a month and you have to write like one article a week about how uh, Disney is the best company on earth or something. I think mm-hmm. that'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah. This is a Viacom family. God damn it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it is a real thing. Uh, a community of progressive listener supported podcasts transmitting from the world to come. Hmm. They've got a <laughs> podcast here with Karl Marx wearing a leather jacket, smoking a joint, and wearing oh, aviators. Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> um, oh, 49th Parahel is on this. That sounds familiar. Yeah. No, I'm not I'm not sure what that is, but I guess, uh, you know, in any case, I, I have a positive attitude towards all media outlets that could possibly hire me, um, no matter what... Uh, you know, crimes they've been accused of and whatnot. Right. Can't wait to see you on the, uh, the compound network next to Anthony Cumia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is Don Hughes reporting for OAN. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. How about this one? Who do you guys think would win in a war? Chechen Mujahideen or the Mexican cartels? Um, oh, I think, I think the Chechens would win. I don't know. Let, let me, uh, as a Eurasian supremacist, um, I uh, <laughs> I would take their side. I don't know. Although Mexicans Catholic, <laughs> so, so that's yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, that yeah. My 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 eternal natures are in conflict now. Um, I wonder I where this. are we fighting? Yeah, I respect this question that because it has thought. the sort of like Discovery Channel like Panther versus. Bay. Like type yeah, of yeah. quality to it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but John brings up a good point though. Like I think if you're fighting in Chechnya, the Chechens are gonna win. If you're fighting in Mexico, the Mexicans hmm. would probably win. So Yeah. What Maybe would they... be a neutral ground. Probably yeah. the United States. I was about to say we're just gonna have yeah. to let them bang it out in North Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's probably the next 20 years of our lives anyways. So <laughs> Russian, Russian hybrid war and uh, Mexican crime syndicates moving to the United States. I don't know. We actually like federate them like the Roman empire did with the, the like peripheral barbarians, bring yeah. them in <laughs> to sure. fight the Chechen fifth columnist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like they would be dueling Varangian guards, like with the, byzantine empire had like they had those norse warriors you know yeah they would uh you know essentially like duke it out for who gets the actual like position in the land and all that um no this is kind of an interesting question though like i think the advantage is like what the chechens are very good at beating up on the russian military you know Mm-hmm. I don't know if a lot of their capabilities there necessarily translate into a fight against the Mexican cartels. Whereas for the cartels, I don't know if you lose a lot with the with the kind of strategies they deploy, whether you're fighting, you know, a weak nation state or like they fight a, a lot of each other too. So I feel like it wouldn't make a big difference whether it was just like whether it's Chechens or another cartel. Like I think you don't have to change up what you're doing too much. So yeah. So we have to give the Mexican cartels like tanks, and then they'll (laughs) lose. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's yeah. There we go. Trick them into powering up. Yeah, and they both have really good music. So I think the Chechens would lose that advantage because that, that I guess is like a thing. They would just terrify Russian soldiers with their like based acoustic guitar songs and stuff. That's lit. That's heavy as hell. Good for that. Yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. Sounds worth a YouTube search. Yeah, there is a, uh, I'll, I'll link you guys to the, the song um and i'll put in the show notes there's a, a song i feel like i've talked about it before on the podcast maybe way early on it, it was uh it's called jerusalem and uh it was like the the their like theme song for the 2000 war or whenever that was and the, the russians were like 
wait, these guys want to fight all the way to Jerusalem. (laughs) 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 We're just trying to take Tbilisi. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to give it to the cartels. I think, I think the cartels might take that one. Any other thoughts? No, I mean, I think the ruthlesses fucking have a ton of money, so I'm sure they do all right. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to abstain. Let God decide. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I would take the Chechens if the Russians are using them in some way or something. Like, if the if the if their natural uh, father figure is, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, like, ushering them, like, you know, it's some sort of thing where, like, they get paid uh, to carry out attacks, but then and like get like protection rackets and stuff within Russia, and uh, um, then then I think they'll win. But I think that uh, in a fair fight. But yeah, so but yeah. If, you know, if it's just them relying on their uh, provincial beliefs and whatnot, then uh, not a chance. Russia really is like the sneak archer of militaries like if they just if you know they're coming you can easily defeat them but if they're doing something sneaky they get like a plus 30 bonus <laughs> or whatever, yeah. and they just wipe the floor with you sure <laughs> all right well i think uh i think that'll wrap us up here thanks for coming on guys that was a really fun discussion and yeah uh, thank you for having us yeah it's a real pleasure yeah anytime we should have you back on again soon um yeah thanks guys yeah so uh you know, if you if you enjoyed this conversation, go check out Exhaust. It's one of uh, my favorite new podcasts. Uh, it's really great. Your slogan, it, what's your slogan again? It's uh oh, it's uh you know, it's a podcast that looks into why nothing feels possible. Right, why nothing feels possible. I felt like that was a very like kindred spirit for you can't win. You know, like that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, go check that out. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to our Patreon and get a second episode every week, as well as access to our Discord, where you can talk to us in our community. And if you want to send in questions anonymously for us to answer on the episodes, you can do that by going to the uh, Twitter account of the podcast, at YouCan'tWinPod, and send them into the Curious Cat. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.